This is Joe Nessel speaking on and for Radical Philosophy at 3CR 8.55 a.m., an outstanding example of community radio, not only in Australia, but around the world. I can remember speaking early when I first arrived uh, to Melbourne at a program on a program called The Women's Shed, and that was my introduction to the wonders of community radio, which are more important in the world now than ever. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. I measure every grief I meet with narrow probing eyes. I wonder if it weighs like mine, or if it has an easier size. Emily Dixon, Holmes, the third series. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR 855 on your AM dial. Radical Philosophy is on Facebook now. You can find it by searching Radical Philosophy Radio Show on Facebook and clicking to follow and keep updated with the show. Happy listening. Good afternoon, listeners, and thanks very much for tuning in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Professor Kathleen Norlock about miscarriage, reproductive loss and fetal death. And this is part two of a two-part interview. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It has been stated that the event that was nothing, miscarriage, is a liminal event. Yes, that is particularly Alison Reihelt's interest. So she is one of the contributors to the journal issue that I co-edited, and Alison Reihelt really wanted to call attention to the extent to which your, your identity doesn't just flip like a switch when you become pregnant. Before pregnancy... Many of us will see ourselves one way. After pregnancy, the, the world will either see us as parents or they will see us as people who suffered a loss. And she describes much of, of being pregnant and of losing pregnancy as a sort of in-between stage. Your identity is not fixed in one way or another. You are not received as definitely either childless by choice or a parent. The experiences of pregnancy and miscarriage are liminal because they are in between, just the way that we, you know, we refer to twilight as, as, and the gloaming as sort of in-between night and day. It's, it's hard to capture that in-between identity. And so she emphasizes the extent to which miscarriage is liminal because she wants to call attention to the ways in which identities themselves keep changing in ways that we are bad at recognizing. So one of the better things we could do for those who suffer from miscarriage and pregnancy loss is to ask them not just how they are, but perhaps even who they are, how they are are feeling and seeing themselves and what they might be feeling that's different. How might they be changing? To say that miscarriage is a liminal event is just to say you see that the person is changing, that she's not who she was and she may not be who she thought she would be in the future. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. I know when, when my mother died 18 years ago, I thought there will always sort of be a partial dark cloud over over the rest of my life, even though I, I probably don't spend 18 years, I don't think about her every day now, but... You know, I, I suppose this, the same could be said for someone having a miscarriage. Yes, my uh, my father died last summer, and I'm surprised to say that I, in the intervening year, I regularly forget that he died. Like every now and then I will think, oh, I should call Dad. And I think that too, even that experience of becoming accustomed to thinking of yourself as someone who lost your parent, that too is a sort of liminal event. It's the experience of having to move from thinking of yourself as that person's daughter to thinking of yourself as that person's survivor. And, and I think those of us who are still grieving or who downright forget, <laughs> no, that person's gone, I can't talk to them, I think we're still going through a liminal event where we have not gotten used to thinking of ourselves or the other person in this new way. That's, that's right. Even my partner said to me the other day that she's lived longer on the earth without her mother than she had oh. with her mother and that was that that was a really important thing to sort of to recognize and to think about yes sort of sort of made me think you know, I think you're always quite lonely without your parents and it's it's really the time when you you have to start to grow up don't you and stand on your own <laughs> two feet 100% you know? <laughs> and you you know, and I think it helps to think of yourself as someone who has borne up under this. That even being the, I've I've started to sort of embrace the, the new way of thinking about myself as someone who has borne up under the loss of her father. And I, I used to be jokingly compared to my father, especially when <laughs> when I acted more like him than my mother would even care for. <laughs> and she would say, "Ah, oh, just like your father." And I would think, "Yes, I, I really am." Jerry's daughter. I am Jerry all over. And there, the new way I, I sort of find myself thinking about myself is I've sort of carried him on into a, a world that he's not in. Uh, it's a different way of thinking about myself, but one I've come to rather like. But, you know, I, I sort of, I carry forward some of his habits and practices, partly because he can't. Mm, yeah, that's, that's a really nice way of, of looking at it. What is miscarriage and person denying Oh, yes. Miscarriage and person denying is Lindsay Porter's argument. So Lindsay Porter is one of our contributing authors, and she was really rejecting something that Elizabeth Harmon, a professor at Princeton, wrote about philosophical justifications for abortion. Liz Harmon says in a fairly well-known article called Creation Ethics, uh, the subtitle is The Moral Status of Early Fetuses and the Ethics of Abortion. So you can see where this is going. That, you know, according to Liz Harmon, Early abortion is morally neutral. It needs no justification, especially in early stages. Fetuses don't have a moral status. And therefore, I mean, it's actually not the center of her paper, but she does say this. Liz Harmon suggests that people who take seriously the badness of early miscarriage and grieve the loss are, in a way, mistaken, that it is an irrational response. And Lindsay Porter takes this up in writing about miscarriage and pregnancy loss to say... Uh, that she thinks it's a mistake, that she understands the, the strategy is, if you want to defend the ethics of abortion, it's tempting to argue, well, killing a person is wrong, 
but a fetus is not a person, therefore the death of a fetus is not wrong or bad. Lindsay Porter wants to argue that the grief of those who miscarry presupposes fetal status, that it, it does suggest there is something not just personally affecting, but perhaps even morally and philosophically important about pregnancy loss. So if we are to take seriously those who say, I really grieve this loss, you know, this was meaningful to me in, in a deep and substantial way, that person denying is, is the wrong strategy to use to defend abortion rights. And I say this knowing that Lindsay Porter would want me to say she is still a supporter of reproductive freedom. Like, she also thinks there, should, there are reasons that abortion should be legal, at least at some stages, but the reason cannot be because miscarriage is meaningless. It can't be that. Because if we really listen to those who suffered miscarriage and who actually think their pregnancy loss was morally meaningful or philosophically important, then it's the wrong strategy to say fetuses have no status at all. So the way she puts it at the end of her article is it's not a low-cost solution <laughs> to defending abortion rights. It, it does too much. It tells too many grievers of miscarriages you're just you're morally mistaken. You're you're mentally mistaken to grieve this loss. So there's got to be a better way to defend abortion than to say miscarriages have no importance whatsoever. And actually, I think that is like ultimately that is my goal every time I do any work on this is to show you know whether you agree that it's morally important or not. There's something philosophically important about miscarriage and pregnancy loss that it it matters to identity and to how we understand what it is to be dead or alive, what it is to be pregnant or a parent, it matters more than philosophers have thought in the past, or at least it matters more than philosophers have indicated. And I think we should do more of that. It's, it could fall into the category of expectation, because I, I know when I was first pregnant, you know, I was I was so excited and I thought it's the... So not knowing whether a child's a boy or a girl. And oh, yeah. that expectation of when they grow up, what are they going to be like? Are we going to be close? Are we not going to be close? Are they going to be interested in philosophy? Or, yeah, you know, yeah. what, are their, what are their interests going to be? And, yeah. you know, when I sort of think back, because well, it's nothing like your experience, but originally, <laughs> originally I was about six weeks pregnant and I had an ultrasound and the doctor thought that it could have been a any topic pregnancy. There really isn't much, you don't have much choice because I don't think anybody <laughs> has actually survived of any topic pregnancy. Oh, um, yes, yes. Yes, topic pregnancy and, and no one has survived. So I, I think it was only two or three days that I that I had to go before I I had a an ultrasound and we, we, everything was all right, but just in that two or three days it was that going from expecting to have a child and you know to have that child I know for the rest of my life and then all of a sudden yeah. it was like everything was being taken away, so yeah, it's it's sort yeah. of like you part, a big part of your future is actually being taken away from you. Have you, I don't know if you're familiar with her, but Hilda Lindemann is a philosopher who's done a great deal of bioethics in her day, and she has the idea that what you do when you're pregnant, well, what you do in a lot of your relationships is you hold someone in personhood. And so she has this phrase, holding another in personhood, and she says, you can do this even with a 
pregnancy that hasn't started yet. You can do this even when you're just trying to get pregnant. But she said she definitely did it when she was first pregnant. Holding someone in personhood is a way of sort of building these expectations and sort of imaginatively constructing the future child. So she says this semi-jokingly, although it is her personal experience, that uh, when she was first pregnant, she said she took to calling the fetus Oscar. Like her name for her pregnancy was Oscar. (laughs) And she and her husband would talk about Oscar and lay plans about Oscar. And then the baby was born. And it was a girl who ended up being her daughter, Linnea. And of course, of course they didn't name Linnea Oscar, right? Oscar wasn't really the plan for this particular person. Oscar was the name for the the sort of idea they were holding in personhood. When the baby presented as a, a feminine girl, they decided to name her Linnea instead. Uh, that that whether whether this was a, a person or some legal status or moral status was way the heck beyond the beside the point for Hilda. That what mattered was this sort of expectation of holding someone in personhood, painting the nursery and laying plants and having expectations and and dreams about what this future child of yours might be like. Mm, Definitely. And when that's, when that's sort of all taken away from you and especially when it's something out of your control, it sort of does, does really affect the rest of your life. And one thing that comes to mind recently, I'm I'm sure it actually originated from the States, but we have a lot of cars with these little stickers on the back and they're they're family stickers, you know, you might have... You know, a, a woman and, and six cats, and or <laughs> or you know your average family, a man, man at the barbecue, a woman hanging out the washing, and a couple of children. And I have actually noticed that people will have two or three children, then they have a child with wings. Oh, yeah, I've I've noticed. I didn't do this myself, but I noticed that when I looked at the websites of other women and. and families who've lost pregnancies, that they do in, involve a lot of imagery of angels, of seeing their, their lost pregnancies or their lost children as angels. I didn't do that myself. I, I don't tend to think of angels. But if you did, it would, in fact, right, be another way to sort of hold that being in personhood, to, to keep holding in personhood the child that you expected, that you thought about, and that you think of yourself as having lost, but, but perhaps is waiting for you at the other end of your life. I'm too pessimistic about what happens after my life to believe that anyone's waiting for me. <laughs> but but I can see why visualizing that same child with wings would be a way to continue to hold them. And I think it is why. Uh, I mentioned carrying forward the habits and practices of my father after his death. And I have an article recently in which I talk about imaginal relationships. And I don't mean imaginary because imaginary suggests, you know, absolutely made up. But imaginal relationships you can have with living people right here. It is, as you sit in the studio right now, you probably do think of people in your life, what they mean to you, what they're like, what you're planning to do with them for dinner tonight. And those are all ways of being in imaginal relationships with the living and the dead. It's a way of holding your relationships in your head. And I think there is something fundamentally human about doing that. That is, it is inevitable that the way we stay in relationships with people, whether they're here or not, 
is we think about them when we're far apart and we build up thoughts about them in our heads and, and that's what it means to be a person in relationship with other persons at all. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, and I'm speaking to Professor Catherine Norlock about miscarriage, reproductive loss and fetal death. How are the ways in which experiences of miscarriage are shaped by social scripts and narrative sharing spaces? Yes, that's a tough question because there, there are so many ways. And one of the ways those experiences are shaped by social scripts is in the way that we all talk to each other about pregnancy. So Lori Paul has an article on transformative experience in which she specifically, jokingly, but, but seriously criticizes the book What to Expect When You're Expecting. It does seem like the social script we share is one in which we tell each other that we have some control over this, that if we just read the right books... Oh, there's a, there's a funny movie called Knocked Up in which the, the number one thing the pregnant woman wants her boyfriend to do is to read these books so that they know what to expect. <laughs> and I think those social scripts that tell us if you just read the right books, eat the right food... Amy Mullen has a, an article in another journal entirely in which she says, you know, one pregnancy book asks you to think every time you take a bite while pregnant, is this the best bite to take for my baby? That those social scripts are shaping our understandings of pregnancy as up to women who should do the right things in the right way so that they will control the experience. And the result is experiences of miscarriage are difficult to articulate or even be forthcoming about on the part of women who have miscarriages because there's a way in which you are announcing that you failed at the project of controlling this experience, that uh, you didn't, maybe you didn't take the right bite for your baby. I have to admit, I, I grieved less than other women who've experienced miscarriage, but even I thought, I mean, one of the first things I thought was, what have I done that would have made me infertile? You know, how might this be my fault? What, <laughs> what should I have done differently? Is it, is it because I, I did take birth control pills in graduate school? Is that, did I cause myself this problem? Right? I don't know a lot of women who have a pregnancy loss who don't at some point think about the ways in which they are to blame. And I think that experience of miscarriage is shaped by a social script that sort of implies you are to blame if this doesn't go right. That's right. Uh, uh, society does sort of put that, put that blame on women for doing something wrong. It must have been your fault when... When really, I mean, it's it's basically luck of the draw, isn't it? Something we have no control over. I'm, I'm horrified to say yes. I mean, I never thought this when I was young, but I really have come to the conclusion that it's, it's rather luck of the draw. And in my fantasy for a better world in the future, the better world in the future is not one that says, here's what you ought to do, or here's what you should expect when you're expecting. <laughs> a better world is one in which what your society does is gather around you when you're pregnant and say, what can we do for you? That would be amazing. Imagine putting the, the needs of the pregnant woman front and center and saying, what can we do for you, instead of saying, here's what you did wrong. Mm. Oh, that's a really good point. Look, we've covered a lot of ground, but is there anything else that you'd like to add that we haven't already discussed? Uh, yeah, I just I just find myself thinking about 
I know, I know when you and I emailed, you, you asked if I had any future study plans in the field. And I am thinking, I want to do, I think there's more to do on how to understand our relationships and how to understand what it means to be human beings the way we are human beings. And I'm saying this because a, a very good student of mine here at Trent University, he gave a paper arguing against abortion as morally permissible. And his paper arguing against abortion as morally permissible was, was very well written, but I, I still disagree with this, that he was saying, I, if you can identify me by my current DNA, my current makeup and constitution, then I am the same entity I was from the day of conception. And I thought, there is more work that philosophers and clinicians and bio, biologists and bioethicists still need to do because I disagree with him that you are constitutionally the same entity you were on the day of conception. And the reason I disagree is, is because of this, this thing I still think we have to do much better than we have, which is to make clearer we are constituted by the experience of gestation. We're not, we're not these sort of individual entities that never, never developed in a give and take with another person's body. But in fact, you know, the day of conception, you, you weren't the person you are now. The day of conception, you were one measly fertilized egg. You were a single-celled organism. And then somebody else's body gave to you over and over again and took away your excretions and then gave you more nutrition so that you're really constituted by somebody else's body. And I think if we did more work on understanding ourselves as fundamentally relational this way, that we didn't get here by uh, developing in some sort of amazing vacuum all by ourselves. We got here only at the expense of somebody else's body. And we are partly constituted by that body. I think we'd all have a better understanding of what pregnancy and miscarriage and abortion are. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, that it is sort of getting into the field of identity as well. And oh, yeah. when you when you actually look at well, alone a, a fertilised egg, you, you look at a baby, a six-month-old, well, uh, for example, us when we were six months old, uh, we didn't have, really we didn't have any any ideas or any any ethics or any philosophy at that age. And every when you look at our physical bodies, every seven years, all our cells are regenerated, so we have different cells in our bodies. And even the point about the same genetics, well, even in identical twins that are genetically the same, they might look quite different to each other because because of environmental factors and also oh, yeah. because some of their genes are switched on and off at different stages in their lives. So... Really, just from the genetic makeup of a fertilised egg, I mean, you, you might be able to tell, well, you could tell the, the sex of the baby and, you know, if there's any genetic sort of diseases and, and you know, things like that, major things. Yeah, atypical. Yes, but smaller things, you really can't tell at all from that. So I'd have to disagree with, with that totally because you're just... So much, so much more than than your genetics, because your genetics can change so much, and your environment, and so many other different factors that make you who you are. 
Yes, and I think philosophers have not been good, especially in Western and European-influenced philosophies. We haven't been good about discussing what it is that we are. We, we were so accustomed to speaking in these individualistic terms that I think philosophers still have a lot more work to do on really getting a good handle on the extent to which our, our very identities are, are such relational things. Yes, our identities, and, and also what makes our identity is our connection with our parents or our caregivers and our siblings as well. So we're, we're part of a, a much bigger sort of framework as well. Agreed. Hmm. Well, it's been really good speaking to you today, and thanks very much for coming onto the program. It's my pleasure. And I've been speaking with Professor Catherine Norlock about miscarriage, reproductive loss and fetal death. Well, that's the end of the program today. And this is part two of a two-part interview. And also, keep listening for Are You Looking at Me?